0: This is Global Humanist Job Talk. I'm ML Clark. Over the last five episodes, we've walked through a complex array of competing social factors shaping the question of human mobility and the rights of the displaced. When I was putting together this series, I struggled with three major questions. One, how on earth was I going to talk about every critical facet of mobility rights in the current world? There is so much research, so many good resources in the form of textbooks, articles, podcasts. What could I cover here that would contribute at all to the conversation? Two, relatedly. What balance should be struck between bringing all that academic and public policy research to bear on these episodes? In other words, how would I avoid making these episodes a recitation of numbers and quotations from deeply studied journalists and academics? And three, How would I make abundantly clear the fact that this issue of displaced people and mobility rights in general isn't just an issue for other parts of the world, other humans whose plights we follow in mainstream news, but rather an issue of us, for all of us, which already hits home more often than we might think? The answer to all three, however, was the same. I chose this format for my podcast series Precisely because I just wanted a space where we could slow down and spend time with the issues that matter, not rushing to conclusions, but rather learning to prioritize sitting with the problems themselves, thinking about them, making the act of thinking about them a more quotidian part of our lives. For this reason, in the show notes for each episode, you'll have found a deeper dive into related materials for those interested in such things. And at the same time, the episodes themselves strive to challenge and interrogate what we take for granted as the basic givens about a problem. In the first series on petronationalism, this meant spending quite some time challenging the notion of the nation state as it's loosely used in so much discourse and teasing out to what extent, if at all, corporations differ historically from the state apparatuses that give them sanction. And in the series on global financing, we moved through some of the most immediate and obvious challenges and players in related industries to highlight a key unifying principle, that mainstream and alternative payment systems are all susceptible to vulnerabilities because none of them is strongly enough incentivized to prioritize the everyday financial needs of all the world's citizens. And now, as we come to the close of this third series on Mobility Rights and the Displaced, we've covered ground as sweeping as deep time migration for the human species, right up to the environmental underpinnings of modern resource wars and the ways that geographical precarity, natural disasters, and climate change all increase the chances of a descent even unto genocide and other human atrocities in need of further mobility recourse. But one last facet, really needs to be driven home on a broader scale to complement all of the attached research and discourse about crises as they're unfolding in so many war and climate-torn facets of our world. And that's the fact that displacement is also happening in North America. The same term we use for people in say Colombia who have had to leave their original towns trying to resettle in other parts of the country we can and should be using more often to describe crises afflicting people in Canada and the U.S. Internally displaced populations. Because until we truly start to recognize the shared humanity at play in this issue, all 8 billion of us, struggling together on one hell of a fragile lifeboat of a planet, We're never really going to dig in collectively and make the political and cultural choices needed to ensure a decent quality of life for ourselves in the decades ahead. It's a difficult reframe to pull off though, precisely because even when things aren't going so well for North Americans, and especially for white settler North Americans like myself, there's a comfortable narrative we tend to fall back on. The idea that however bad it is for us, at least we're not living in a less developed country, right? Well, except that many of our systems in the West only provide the illusion of greater regulation and recourse, and the private sector, aided by lobby groups and sympathetic sitting governments, is a seasoned hand at clawing back as much as it can from both. Moreover, without adequate investment in a more concerted and system-wide response to climate change already in process, There isn't a government form on hand that can effectively combat the devastation of seeing one's home wiped out by hurricane, tornado, flood, or fire. We are all so much more precariously rooted than we might think, and yet in that shared precarity is also an opportunity for growth, for resilience, for something better. And that's why we're closing off this series with one last look at a concern that persists for all of us and asking about our collective rights to mobility in such a starkly rich, poor, divided world. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're moving through different landscapes in the world of mobility rights and displaced people, our past migrations, our present crises, and the future of movement we deserve. I know I just finished saying that I don't want these episodes to devolve into a series of numbers and quotes, but there's one summation of the problem in Sasuke Assassin's 2014 expulsions, brutality and complexity in the global economy that so nicely tied together some of the concerns from all three series in this season. Though slender, the full book is a much more academic read, filled with terminology to match, so it might not be for every listener to this program. But in her introduction she argues of the many displacement pressures found around the world. Quote, These expulsions are made. The instruments for this making range from elementary policies to complex institutions, systems, and techniques that require specialized knowledge and intricate organizational formats. One example is the sharp rise in the complexity of financial instruments, the product of brilliant creative classes in advanced mathematics. Yet, when deployed to develop a particular type of subprime mortgage, that complexity led to the expulsion a few years later of millions of people from their homes in the United States, Hungary, Latvia, and so on. Another is the complexity of the legal and accounting features of the contracts, enabling a sovereign government to acquire vast stretches of land in a foreign sovereign nation state as a sort of extension of its own territory, even as it expels local villages and rural economies from that land. Our advanced political economies have created a world where complexity too often tends to produce elementary brutalities. The channels for expulsion vary greatly." nationalism, global financing, mobility rights, and displacement, all included above. And as you may also have noticed in that quotation, all leading to a crisis that drives people in North America too from their homes. What does that North American displacement look like in practice? In 2022, 3.3 million adults in the United States, or 1.3% of the adult population, Was displaced last year by natural disasters including hurricanes, floods, fires, and tornadoes. Of those events, more than half were caused by hurricanes, and the damage disproportionately affected Florida, where nearly one million were displaced. The breakdown also, to no one's surprise, more significantly impacted the poor, with almost 22% of the displaced reporting a household income of under 25,000 US dollars. For contrast, the overall U.S. population has around 17.4% of its residents living at that income bracket. Displacement isn't always permanent, of course, and in this case only one in six of these displaced adults didn't return to their homes or their regions in general. Some were only away for a week while the damage was repaired. But the bigger shift in this data lies in its very existence because the Household Pulse Survey, sent out to a million households last year and collecting a total of just under 71,000 responses, had never asked this question before. This was the first time it had made a concerted effort to recognize the possibility of displacement pressures as part of the U.S. experience. In Canada, data on internal displacement is spotty too. A delicate term, domestic climate refugees, has popped up in recent years to describe some of our resettlement patterns, and studies acknowledge that Canadians are increasingly taking environmental risks into consideration when deciding where to live. We certainly don't lack for reasons for concern either. In 2021, British Columbia issued 25,000 property evacuation notices for a wildfire season that saw 1,600 blazes and burned 90% of one village to the ground. That year in November, Canada also felt the impact of, I kid you not, the Pineapple Express, a ridiculous name we gave to a kind of river system in the atmosphere that brought heavy rain to British Columbia and the northwestern United States. A state of emergency unfolded that caused around 2.5 to 7.5 billion dollars in property damage and took a handful of lives. As these events intensify, our cultures are at least gradually seeing climate change denialism fall to the wayside. Although there will always be people who can't quite figure out why extreme winter events are also part of global warming. A failure if you ask me of our messaging around the latter phrase. But in the place of denying that extreme weather events are happening and that they are increasingly affecting the ability of North Americans to live safe, normal lives and trust in the reliability of the property they've been fortunate enough to acquire, we have a new problem that requires better messaging. The importance of not giving over so much to despair that North Americans resign themselves to the idea that nothing can be done. Of course, there are things we can do to mitigate the effects of climate change, at least, and its impact on human lives at home and abroad. To this end, both Canada and the U.S. have, in recent years, confirmed their global commitments to providing more options for resettlement to what U.S. Congress termed climate-displaced persons. In 2018, the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration marked a UN first in the efforts to create a global consensus on how best to tackle international migration, and Canada has dozens of pilot programs currently testing how to implement related guidelines. Legislation around the rights of the displaced and improved approaches to mobility in general is of course a good start, both internationally and nationally. However, a great many political efforts are made on paper that fail to amount to much in practice due to persisting cultural myths. And unfortunately, even as we are all becoming more pressingly aware of the impact of environmental change on our homes and livelihoods, we're also living with huge upticks in nationalist events. One of these is obviously Russia's war in Ukraine, which has made us all more acutely aware of national and regional frontiers as we worry about that conflict deepening. Another is the rising Sino-American conflict, an ostensibly economic clash between the US and China that is also enmeshed in notions of territorial limits that don't make it any easier to suggest relaxing our approach to borders in general. And of course, we have rising nationalist movements abattening battening down of the hatches against other countries under the auspices, often pseudo-religious, of protecting our cultures from bad faith actors. And while raising extremely toxic ideas about the cultures we're supposedly protecting in the first place and while raising extremely toxic ideas about the cultures we're supposedly protecting in the first place. All of which serves home, exactly. Because as pressing as all these short-term human conflicts might seem, and are, in terms of immediate risk to human life and livelihood, so too are the longer-term conflicts, the deep time struggle of our whole species to make a home in equilibrium with the environment that gives us the tools to take shelter and the hope perhaps to thrive. There are no easy answers to the questions and tension points I've tried to raise and hold in contrast this season. Artificial notions of coherently sovereign nation states have sheltered state actions that bear little difference from the corporations given license to exploit other territories and their peoples through them. The global finance industry, for all that it's enamored by the possibilities of new technology, is simultaneously bloated with poorly regulated players and significantly short on the cross border relationships actually needed to improve local and individual agency and in the realm of mobility rights and displaced peoples, our species has a robust history of moving to adapt to climate pressures and in response to increasing global possibilities. Nevertheless, we live in an age of more rigidly defined borders than ever, a system propped up by flawed notions of the nation state and propping up flawed global financial systems in turn. The agony of this situation only worsens with our increased awareness of the fragility of homes everywhere, from war, from natural disaster, and from resource scarcity. And simultaneously, our helplessness to put a unilateral end to border wars that are currently distracting us from these broader, more species-wide concerns. So what's to be done? Well, that's the trick, isn't it? A great many platforms trade on providing quick and easy answers to the world's biggest problems. Sometimes there aren't any, but we can prepare ourselves to respond to better options as they arise by routinely working to reframe the problem. If we recognize that we are united more as a species by risks of displacement and diminished economic opportunities under environmental change, What could we do to reduce the hold of nationalism and corporate monopoly on our lives? What social contracts, what more humanist ways of being, could we lean into locally and globally instead? This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with ML Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.